Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. It's Thursday, November the 12th. Shell launches its carbon neutral program. They're looking for your two cents. We'll talk to Dan McTigg about this. And Lisa Raitt will get real about what it's like to live with a partner who has young onset Alzheimer's. But first, for the past four days, we have, according to the modeling that the province released, um, where they were predicting worst case scenarios, we could be looking at 1,200 new cases of COVID-19 a day in the province uh, by this time. We're at worst case scenario. That's not good news. And here's another piece of uh, news that seems bad. If you were taking a look at the Sun yesterday, or the Toronto Star rather, you might have noticed a story. Headline is, Ontario rejected its own public health agency's advice when it came to launching that color-coded plan for COVID-19 restrictions at the time when it was released. We had talked to some medical experts, and they said, well, it's just not good enough. I mean, the numbers, when you talk about cases of uh, percentage of the population and positive cases, it's too high. The thresholds are too high. Last night, Dr. Michael Michael, uh, Warner from the Michael Guerin Hospital, who's very active on Twitter, posted a video. I want to play a little bit from that video. It's time for Premier Ford to provide us with clear, honest answers. No amount of spin can explain this. At his next press conference, we need the truth. We also need to understand who is going to lead us at the next stage of this pandemic, because the current leadership just isn't good enough. Dr. Michael Warner joins us right now. Doctor, it's good to have you on the show. Um, You started out your message saying that we are at a turning point in Ontario's pandemic response. Can you start there and tell us why you think we're at a turning point? to be at a turning point because clearly things are getting out of control and they will continue to get out of control unless something materially changes in the province of Ontario. And I think the whistleblowing activity and the bravery of Dr. Shelley Deeks and Dr. Beat Sander uh, could be that turning point uh, because uh, I think Ontarians, including all the business owners listening to you, all the employees who are out of work, you know, it's not just the healthcare professionals who are upset now, it's everybody. Ford already lost the doctors, and he's going to lose, you know, all of Ontarians soon unless there's new leadership for our pandemic plan because, you know, what we've done so far simply has not worked, and, you know, physicians, epidemiologists, scientists have been willfully ignored, and, and this is the result of that. What are you hearing from your colleagues, experts in the uh, medical profession, about that reopening framework? Where did it go completely off the rails? Is Was it setting thresholds too high to move into the next level? Well, I'm not an expert in epidemiology. I just have a loud voice. And the you know, I think what's troubling is that what I'm hearing is from Twitter and from phone calls and from text messages. It's not me who needs to hear about this. It's all of Ontarians need to hear from an expert at the podium, at the microphone, not Premier Ford. We need to hear from scientists and experts daily about where we are and what we need to do to make this better. It's clear that the thresholds are far too high. As Dr. Deeks mentioned, the threshold chosen for the red zone is four times higher than she recommended. And in fact, the the threshold for the green zone, which much of the province is in, that's the kind of everything's okay zone, is two times higher. So we failed on 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 the harsh end and on the low end here. And it means that COVID is going to continue to get out of control. And what many of us have predicted will happen. Do you think, um, before I get to your predictions here, do you think that the government and the Ford government 
uh, when setting up this uh, this COVID-19 framework. Um, they lean towards placating individuals out there, the, the, the uh, Ontarians that want to get back to normal. Well, I think everybody in Ontario wants to get back to normal, including me. And nobody takes any pleasure in shutting down businesses. But uh, what he did is penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, you know, if you, if you if you don't implement appropriate public health measures at the outset, then the subsequent lockdown that will be necessary will be far harsher and far more severe and much longer than it, than would have been necessary. Uh, I mean, Premier Ford, his own press conferences, says that health and safety is the number one priority, which I do not believe. Uh, based on his actions, but he also says that he gets a number of phone calls from business leaders, small business owners, etc., who are legitimately concerned. But but if public health policy is determined by the number of phone calls Premier Ford gets, we're in major trouble. I wasn't a big fan of the Wynn government, but I will say this. Kathleen Wynne wasn't afraid of people saying they didn't like her. I think that might be a problem when you talk about Premier Ford. He really wants to be liked by everyone. That puts him in a very difficult position and almost impossible when you're dealing with the pandemic. Because as you say, like it or not, numbers get too high. We're going to be heading towards a lockdown. I was reading today about, about uh, circuit breaker lockdowns. Are you familiar with that phrase? Because this is the first time I've ever heard about it and actually uttered it on the air. Well, I, I know the the chief public health officer of Manitoba has invoked that 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 term. I think what it means in each jurisdiction uh, varies, but uh, I'm happy to hear what you have to say and I can provide my feedback. Well, I just heard that a circuit breaker lockdown is like a, it's a short lockdown. It's a two week lockdown. Um, and I'm just going by what I read about this this morning. Uh, but experts are saying that's not enough when you're dealing with COVID-19. You, we might be looking at lockdowns when, because our numbers are getting so high that um, are, you know, have to be a month with a possible second month kind of to get this virus under control. Where do you sit at, at how bad a lockdown could get if we don't take things more seriously here in the province? Well, I think that you know, the modeling today may show that we're headed towards 2,000 cases per day. And let's just digest that for a second. You know, in, in COVID-1 or wave one, I think we peaked around 660 per day. And you know, still most of these cases are in Peel and Toronto, you know, affecting racialized, marginalized people. Um, you know, how long a lockdown will be necessary is really not my area of expertise. But what is important is that if we do invoke severe public health measures, while we're doing that, we have to make sure that the public health infrastructure to get us out of this is supported. I mean, we need to have contact tracers. We need everyone downloading the COVID app. We need support for people to isolate. We need uh, pay for people who don't have benefits so they can stay home when they're sick. All those things need to be in place. The vaccine is far in the distance, uh, and we are going to be dealing with COVID for, I think, 18 to 24 months. So unless we start acknowledging that and investing appropriately, we'll have a cycle of lockdowns, which is worse for business. So if we are going to lock down, let's take advantage of that time to make sure that we don't have to lock down in the future. 18 to 24 months from the start of, of the pandemic or from now? Well, you know, the, there are so many challenges with a vaccine. You know, there's a press release by Pfizer, but at the most in 2021, they'll be able to produce 1.3 billion doses, and it's a two-dose regimen. It has to be kept at minus 70 degrees Celsius. You know, Canada would need about 75 million doses. We don't have the logistics to transport, you know, ultra-cold vaccines in this country. 
Uh, I mean, there's a lot, and the safety profile hasn't been proven. We haven't seen, you know, it hasn't been peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. So in every country is going to be looking for the same thing at the same time. So I'm not saying that a vaccine isn't in our future, but we also have to acknowledge that as GDP goes up, vaccine hesitancy goes up, and that affects this country as well. So to say that a vaccine is going to save us or that it's around the corner, I think, is untrue. Uh, and which means we need to double down on our public health efforts and not hope that a vaccine is going to get us through this in the short term. So the province today, you'd made mention of this, they're releasing new modeling today, and we could uh, perhaps surpass 2,000 new cases per day by early December. That pretty much uh, puts the kibosh on Christmas. Celebrations probably are not going to be happening in any way, shape, or form that we are used to in normal years. But Christmas aside, you are um, asking the premier today for some answers. What specifically do you want him to clarify? So, so I watch the premier's press conference most days. And, and as I've learned, the first half is some type of announcement about a funding, about funding for something probably that's been underfunded for years. Uh, and then there's about 10 minutes for limited questions uh, from the media where they're put on mute in between their questions. I mean, that's not good enough. Today should be all questions from the media. We need answers as to why the advice of Dr. Deeks and why the modeling table and science table were not consulted when they created their framework. Why do they choose thresholds that are four times higher than what was deemed safe? And who's actually making the decisions? Because it's clear that it's not doctors or experts. And then in follow-up, who is going to lead us through this? Dr. Williams is not capable of leading us through this. It's just not possible. I have nothing against him, but we need a transformative leader who's not beholden to the premier to walk us through what's going to be a long and dark winter. And it can't be a politician at the front of the room talking to Ontarians. It has to be a scientist who acknowledges the economic challenges of fighting this pandemic, but puts health and safety first consistently. Is it possible that this framework was purposeful when it comes to our premier uh, to leave it up to medical officers of health for each municipality to play the bad guy? And if that is the case and we do go down into lockdowns, do you think the public will still look towards the medical officer of health or will they will this still fall on Doug Ford's shoulders at the end of the day if they're upset? You know, political motivation is not something I'm going to speak to, but I can say that there's no expert I've encountered who thinks the framework makes any sense. And in its very first stress test in Peel, uh, Dr. Lawrence Lowe had the bravery to implement more significant restrictions. In the second stress test, Dr. Eileen Davila used you know, legal power and put herself at legal risk by, uh, by using Section 22 to protect Torontonians. So in its very first stress test, it failed. I don't think I need to say anything else. And, of course, the medical officers of health are going to be the targets from business leaders, etc. But, you know, the premier's hands are all over this. And it's not about blame. I don't care about blame. It's about scrapping this framework, coming up getting with something right. informed by science and moving forward. Yeah, it's getting it right. Yeah. Where do you um, suspect we're going to be when it comes to elective surgeries? Within the coming weeks? Well, that's a huge concern. So, you know, the province consistently underreports the number of patients in the ICU with COVID 19 because if someone is in the ICU long enough that their COVID test becomes negative, they're taken off the list as COVID recovered. So, you know, they might report 90 patients today, but actually it's 106 and 15 new overnight. 
the last modeling showed that if we reached the 150 threshold, which is not too far off, that's when elective surgeries become at risk. They're already at risk in certain hospitals because some hospitals have been affected by outbreaks, which means their ORs have closed. And also there are, other, there are hospitals that are much more affected than others, like you know, William Osler, Humber, Scarborough, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, where you know, they're doing an excellent job. But if their hospitals are full, they just can't provide those services. So I think that is coming up. And uh, it's not just elective surgeries, but it's access to diagnostic imaging. You know, if you're a woman waiting for a mammogram, that was canceled in wave one. We can't have it. Yeah, I know. That's how people die. And uh, people say the ICUs aren't full. They they aren't. But we're also providing all non-COVID care right now, which cannot change. We have to keep doing it. I think there's a lot of people with their fingers crossed right now, just hoping that there's nothing going on inside that they should be aware of and should have been aware of sooner. Um, Doctor, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for, uh, you know, stating your mind on Twitter. If it wasn't for people like you that are, you know, getting their voices out there, sometimes, uh, you know, things would slip through the cracks. And I think we are dealing with a pandemic. I know a lot of people want to get back to normal, but that's just not an option right now. So it's better to be informed. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Shell Canada today is letting you add your two cents to your bill while filling up at any of their stations across Canada. It's called the Carbon, the Drive Carbon Neutral Program. It launches today. And basically, you're going to help them uh, buy offset credits to reduce net carbon dioxide emissions from the production of refining and burning fossil fuels. It's going to be offered through Shell's Easy Pay app, and it will be free of charge until the end of December. Dan McTagg joins the show right now. Uh, Dan, friend of the show, also uh, is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan seems really weird. So, uh, Shell, uh, are they in uh, dire straits? Do they not have enough cash that they can help out the planet on their own? Why are they asking us to pitch in? I think it's really uh, one word, and my kids use it a lot, wokery. It's really trying to be cool and trendy. Um, and by asking people to actually uh, give a, uh, an oil company money. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a generous person by nature, but, uh, uh, you know, considering the amount of money the companies make in normal times, I think it's really upon themselves to, uh, you know, perhaps think about investing some of that money. If the, these are things that they believe they have to do, then by all means, let's do that. But let's, Kelly, separate what is carbon emissions from all the other type of emissions. You're asking people who buy gasoline and cars that are far more efficient uh, and, and do not spew toxins in the air. And we have, in effect, very clean fuel in Canada and very clean outcomes at the tailpipe in the way that, you know, I take the period from, I don't know, go back to 2000 to 2017, and we put this out in our recent report on clean fuel standard. You can find it at... Uh, uh, affordableenergy.ca. It's the LFX report. But what we pointed out is that even though there has been a 50% increase in miles traveled uh, since 2000, there's been a corresponding 50% decline in other emissions other than carbon uh, uh, dioxide, carbon monoxide, uh, uh, other things that uh, people uh, are often, you know, and, and uh, NOx and SOx and volatile organic compounds, all those have dropped dramatically. So I'm not sure what Shell is trying to promote here. Um, maybe uh, Royal Dutch, as they're known, is giving us uh, uh, the royal opportunity to feel good. Maybe uh, want us to pay, you know, pay Dutch. Uh, and, of course, are operating in the way that I would refer to as a Shell game. But at the end of all of this, it will accomplish absolutely nothing. We already have a carbon tax in Canada. 
and it's increasing every year. That's what the government has identified. Maybe it's time for Shell to uh, uh, knock off the uh, the PR game and start recognizing that uh, Canadians, uh, you know, have done a tremendous amount at getting clean uh, energy already. Oh, Dan, I want to tell you, I am disappointed. I was hoping for a trifecta of zingers in there. I, we, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you missed out on the third one. But I, I wonder, like, this is going to be offered through Shell's Easy Pay app, which is kind of odd to me because apps are usually are usually supposed to be user-friendly. And so it's going to be free of charge until the end of December to get us used to using that Easy Pay app. But then you're going to be asked, if you continue to use the app, if you want to contribute two cents per liter to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions blamed for go- global warming. So if this is something that they ask you each time, they are then making it more convenient to use the app if it's a one-off and you have to forget about it and you start to notice your gas bill going up and you're not sure why, you're going to be sort of peeved. This could actually work against them. Well, it could work against them. They're going to say that, hey, it worked for us in Holland, uh, you know, at head office. Um, but I think it's a very different market there. Uh, for one, uh, energy prices are already extremely high, and that's something that governments have done. Uh, going back to 1973, when, uh, you know, in response to uh, energy shocks, oil shocks, uh, uh, the, the, that country and many others in, in, in similar situations as in Europe, raised taxes so dramatically that a small amount like this probably is insignificant. It's going to rise anyways. But Europeans are hitting a major tipping point, not just with gasoline, but also consider where Shell and others have invested their money. In fact, what they've done is they've invested public money or taken advantage of public subsidies to build windmills and solar panels, all of which are wonderful but highly unreliable and certainly don't give us the kind of bulk and heft and uh, uh, you know base load that we need to ensure that we provide reliable energy. We don't have blackouts like we saw in California. We don't have rolling blackouts like we're seeing currently in England. So you know, there's a lot more to this story, uh, and it's really the tip of the iceberg as far as uh, where these companies want to transition. But make no mistake, they're transitioning because they're feeling political pressure from a very well-organized group that is basically saying the world is coming to an end in 10 years and uh, really providing uh, you know, for themselves a bit of a shield against uh, the constant onslaught. You're hearing that uh, somehow uh, you know, we can increase taxes, increase carbon taxes, ignore the good work that's been done to bring efficiency in all vehicles, uh, then that, that will somehow control uh, changes in the weather. And I don't want to be pedantical. I don't want to certainly be flippant. Uh, but the reality is this is, becoming, uh, this is becoming a bit of a show. I think many people are starting to think they're getting ripped off at a time when Canadians are paying more and more for everything, including food costs, including a carbon tax, including a, a clean fuel standard the federal government's about to impose that will double and if act as really a second carbon tax, drive 30,000 jobs out of this country, drive $22 billion out of this nation in terms of investments, I think Canadians are going to look at this with a very serious uh, dose of uh, scepticism and uh, ask Shell to maybe revisit its interests uh, abroad, perhaps not here in Canada. Dan, I don't think we can accuse you of being flippant or pedantic. Uh, punny, maybe. Um, can I? Le- can you leave us on where we're going with gas prices? Because we're, we should be heading towards that winter gas, which is always more expensive, right? No, other way around, Kelly. It's uh, oh, is it? It's already been implemented since the fifteenth. Look, the li- the higher number of, of pandemic cases that we're going to hear uh, from all the reports I'm gathering uh, means that oil and gasoline are going absolutely nowhere, and it's going to remain where it is, range bound between ninety five cents a liter 
dollar five at least until sometime in 2021, until there's a, a you know a drop in significant drop in numbers and increase in economic activity. Activity, you know, planes get uh, moving again. Uh, it's not likely that we're going to see any change in prices. Yes, you're going to get a two day up, two day down, but nothing, nothing extraordinary. And we've been like this now since last May. Dan, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, and it's been too long. Have yourself a fantastic afternoon. Looking forward to doing it again, and you too as well. Thanks, Kelly. Last week, former Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt certainly got our attention. She shared some uh, what videos that I can only describe as heartbreaking of her husband, Bruce, and his battle with young-onset Alzheimer's. She shared them on social media. She's been getting a lot of reaction, but I don't think she's been getting enough media attention. And so uh, we reached out to her. Chris Creston has her on the line now. Uh, welcome to the show, Lisa. It's good to have you on. Thanks for reaching out, Kelly. I appreciate it. So I have heard of early onset Alzheimer's. You describe your husband's as young onset Alzheimer's. What's the difference? So there's a terminology difference that I've chosen because right now when people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, if they're over 65, they're oftentimes told that they're, they're in the early phase of Alzheimer's. Young onset is completely different. It's very rare. It doesn't share a lot of similarities with uh, Alzheimer's you traditionally think of, meaning people who are over 75 years old. And as a result, the community calls it young onset to signify that it's not about whether or not you've detected the Alzheimer's in your body early, but rather the fact that it affects you as a young person early. Bruce was diagnosed at the age of 56. He's 61 now. For those who haven't seen the video, can you describe, uh, you know, just as, I guess, as succinctly as you could what you posted? Because I think it's hard for me to really describe them. Sure. You know, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe, Kelly, in general, because yeah. you just, you can't, you can't get your mind around it because it's, it's just so shocking. So basically, the life that we have right now or the life Bruce has right now is he can't speak. He may get one word out. Usually it's a curse word. And then after that, he fills in noises for what he thinks is dialogue. He thinks it's dialogue, but it's just noises to us. So there's, it's babbling and it's gibberish and it seems to be in the, you know, the, the kind of cadence of a conversation. And he thinks what he's saying makes absolute sense to me and I have no idea. But what that's one side of it. The other side of it, though, is when he's very emotional and upset and anxious, um, there's no filter on the anger. And as a result, it can turn violent. And so we're just at a stage right now where he's expressing his, his anxiety very vocally, uh, very physically. And it's tough to watch. And I don't know why, Kelly, to be honest, I put the video up. Maybe it was <sighs> just uh, trying to help other people understand that this is normal for people with this disease. I'm not an exception. Yep, it's a very rare form of of Alzheimer's under 65. But the stuff I'm showing on video is the stuff that the Alzheimer chat boards talk about every single day. I guess you heard my reaction when you said you don't know why you posted it. That was my major question. That's what I've been kind of rolling over in my head was what motivated you to post the videos of your husband, Bruce. And I think that that really, the fact that you're not really sure really punctuates how difficult it is to live with Alzheimer's. It must be extremely frustrating for Bruce, 
that when he's speaking in gibberish, you guys don't understand what he's saying. The other people in his household are not understanding what he's trying to communicate. Because if he thinks he's speaking in full sentences and you guys aren't grasping it, imagine how frustrating that must be. Imagine how frustrating it is to, uh, you know, sleep with one eye open, as you've said you've been doing. You're not getting the adequate sleep you want. You're dealing with a pandemic. You're dealing with watching the person that you've chosen to share your life with fade away in front of your eyes. And it's just soul crushing. So I, I, you say you don't know what motivated you, but could it be that you were hoping for um, a bit of community? You needed to hear that other people related to what you're going through, even though you know that there's groups out there? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, who knows what makes up our own psyche. I also determined, though, that I, I was going to be upfront with it. Maybe it's a signal to my friends who wonder why I'm not in contact with them anymore or why I don't seem to be posting as often as I did or why I'm not able to take part in Zoom calls as clearly as I can. And I think the other part of it, too, is I just I want people to understand how all-consuming it is on an individual and it's not, uh, it, it's not easy. I'm not looking for sympathy. There's lots of us out there that are doing it. But my biggest, there are two things that drove me, okay? One was I take part in a wonderful online Zoom chat group on Thursday nights with other spouses who are dealing with the same thing. And both of the women on the call have said they're going to retire early in order to look after their husbands. And a red flag went up because I thought, I understand the stress, but the concept of leaving my career because I'm I'm supposed to go and, and dedicate ten the next ten years of my life to to care, uh, I can't get my head around that, and mm-hmm. I feel guilty for not wanting to take that step. So I think part of the reason why I wanted to show is to show that workplaces bosses be very aware that when your employee says I'm dealing with young onset Alzheimer's, this is what it looks like, and cut them some slack so that they can work in a modified basis or get them some help. The second is, it seems like young onset is a very hot um, I don't know, topic of, of, of uh, I don't know, TV shows and movies right now. So there's a movie coming out with Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci, which looks lovely. And it's Oh, my gosh. It's going to get the Kleenex ready already. <laughs> well, I know. And then the other one is uh, this TV show called This Is Us has the matriarch there kind of mm. hinting around the fact that she has MCI. But here's the thing. They just sugarcoat it. They, they don't even get into the half of what comes down the pipe for families and what it really looks like. And they're very careful to say, well, it's only, it's only mild cognitive impairments. And, oh, look, she got lost on the way to get a birthday cake. Guys, it's a lot more crappy than that, trust me. And it shouldn't get the Hollywood treatment at all. That, you know, that dot, dot, dot of, oh, she forgot her keys, and then she died. I mean, there's 15 years in between the two. <laughs> and you've got to have a comprehension of, of this disease. And more people are getting it, and more high-profile people are getting it, and we don't know how to stop it. So, yeah, I guess, what the heck, I put it up. We're speaking with Lisa Raitt, who uh, her husband, Bruce, right now at the age of 61, is dealing with young um, onset Alzheimer's. Lisa, I was speaking to my husband about it. You know, we don't have kids. Uh, We've known each other for uh, years and years and years since we were in high school. And uh, I consider him to be one of my, not just my spouse, but one of my closest friends. And we discuss a lot of things together uh, about, you know, as we age and how we're going to handle things because it's just us. Um, Did you discuss with 
Bruce, while he was lucid that you might post some of these videos on social media, because my husband's reaction was, Kelly, don't ever do that to me. Mm, that's interesting. So I, I struggled with that ethical issue, and that's probably why I didn't uh, put up the worst of the videos where he's punching holes in walls. Um, but that is the stigma associated with it. This is not for your husband to say that I fully understand, but what he has to understand is that it's not him anymore. It's the disease has taken over and it's, there's no shame. It is the impact of the disease, but you bring up a really good point. By the time Bruce got diagnosed in 2016, he was not, he was getting to the point where he wasn't able to make his own decisions in general. And I had lost the window of time where I could have had discussions with him about a care plan going forward. Does he want to go into a long-term facility? When's the right time? I missed all that because we didn't get a diagnosis when he was really exhibiting early enough for me to have that. So I'm kind of flying on my own here. And and I probably have kept him at home uh, with me for a, a lot longer than had we had the conversation about what he would want in terms of the burden on our family looking after him versus him being in a place where he had excellent care. So in reality, uh, you know, a lot of the times we don't know what motivates us to do this. Uh, what could have motivated you to do this is to force people into having d- uncomfortable, difficult conversations to, to maybe stress that it's time to start talking and it's time to be realistic about what could face us as we, you know, uh, age. What challenges you most as a caregiver? when to know when he has to go into long-term care. It's the number one consuming issue for me right now. How much do I take? How much do I trade off of my health, my sanity, my safety, my kids' safety, my school abilities, my career to keep him at home as long as possible, uh, fighting against a disease that is I'm not going to win the fight against um, versus him going into a long-term care facility where I can't monitor him 24 hours a day and, and give him the love he needs. That is that is the dilemma at the moment, and lots of families live it. And I'm getting good advice from lots of people who have gone through this about timing. Um, but COVID-19 messes the whole kit and caboodle up, right? You can't even go in to take a look at facilities. What have you learned most um, that, that, that shocks you the most about this disease, Alzheimer's, that you know we've heard about for years and years and years, but until you really experience it um, with a loved one, you just have no idea? I think what surprises me the most is that there are limits to my capacity. I always thought I could handle anything that comes along. And in fact, our long-term care plan at the beginning was, you know, my decision was to keep him home as long as possible. And I now know that there are some very real physical and emotional and mental limits to what a human can do for another human. And it's, uh, it gives me a lot more empathy for people out there who are struggling with the same kind of decisions. How's Bruce today? Terrible. It's a terrible day, Kelly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I refuse to sugarcoat it. He was up at four, you know, punching the bed. He thinks that there's somebody in the house. He's throwing stuff around. I'm worried now about losing my caregivers because he's 6'2", 250. He's a big guy. And he doesn't put hands on anybody. But I see that there's a, a hole now starting in my bedroom wall, whereas before it was only in the entryway downstairs. So I just noticed that when I walked in the room to do the, the interview. So obviously he's back to slamming doors off of off of the hinges and mm. it's tough. It is tough. And I'm uh, I'm we're safe and we've got precautions in, in play. But, you know, 
it's uh, the only option to deal with these behavioral things is for hospitalization. And that breaks my heart because then I don't see them. Lisa, I think, you you know, a lot of people listening right now can say um, that they, they can relate to you and that, that is unfortunate. It's such a horrible disease and uh, it's hard to watch a loved one fade away in front of your eyes. But what you're dealing with right now is is definitely something that other people listening uh, can relate to. And, and it's something that I definitely will learn from. And that is mm-hmm. uh, it's time to have a conversation and it might be uncomfortable, but hey, We've got a lot of time to talk during this pandemic and we've got to make plans and we have to make sure we know what our loved ones want. Lisa, I want to thank you for being incredibly honest today. Thanks, Kelly. I told my kids already that if I ever have this diagnosis, I want to go in early to a very comfortable place that I can enjoy. And uh, that's written down in in my, my care package. So I encourage others to take a look at these things. Lisa, we're thinking about you today as uh, you enter another tough day. Thanks. Appreciate your time. That's Lisa Raitt, former conservative cabinet minister. Wow. Uh, just when you think, you know, you're dealing with a lot with the pandemic, you know, we hear stories like this and and she's not alone. So a little bit of kindness goes a long way when you're dealing with people. You have no idea what people are dealing with behind the scenes when you're out in public. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure hanging out with you on a daily basis. Click subscribe wherever you download podcasts and we'll be ready and waiting for you here on a daily basis. Otherwise, hey, if you can spare some time between nine and noon, we broadcast live on 640 Toronto. Hopefully you'll join us. Have a great day.